Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We have, you know, we have this whole backlog of Supreme Court cases that we're going to get into. We had the end of the term um, and they sort of, I guess they kind of ended on brand after sort of mixing it up for a few weeks, you know, kind of throwing us a lot of surprises, getting a, you know, I'm not sure cheers, but at least um, some surprise from the libs and sort of, you know, kind of uh, uh, throwing some curveballs about the current Supreme Court's corrupt brand and everything. So we got a lot of, we got, we got that stuff. Uh, and, and we also have a, a theme today with some other topics, which is very online conservatives. And, you know, one thing that happened over the weekend that we're not going to get too much into because, you know, I just did a post about it. But um, we had this kind of wild extended holiday weekend on Twitter where Elon Musk and his CEO, who whose name I can't whose name uh, escapes me at the moment. It's like Yaccarino or something like that. I'm sure I, I don't remember her name, but I'm sure she'd like to forget her name because why did she leave like NBC to be CEO of Twitter when this stuff is going on? So, so they, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've cut so much tech capacity and they've, they've uh, fired so much of the staff that they were, they were having a hard time keeping the site online this weekend. They actually had to like start rationing tweets. Right. And, you know, we have, we have all the stuff that, um, most of the things that uh, people online have been talking about Elon Musk about over the last, you know, eight or nine months or whatever is, is his culture war stuff, right? I, I, I said in a post that, um, you know, Elon Musk is basically like another rich, divorced, middle-aged divorced dude whose hot new girlfriend is white nationalism, right? That's his big thing. And he's showing her off, right? And he and he he's totally obsessed. He's doing doing all this stuff. Now we get into the tech stuff, um, with the site falling apart. And and actually now you have uh, Facebook Meta tomorrow is launching this kind of Twitter clone, trying to take advantage of all this to kind of uh, to uh, deal a death blow to Twitter. Uh, but the things were the other things online. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about this. This it's not an ad exactly. It's like a web video that the DeSantis campaign put out, which is, we're going to get into that. It's like half, it's like half gay bashing, but half sort of like, um, swap video of like Ron and a bunch of like oiled up muscle bound guys. You know, it's this kind of weird world of online conservatism where these two things kind of, uh, 
kind of somehow match together. And then, and then, uh, you know, the other thing is we're going to get into this. We're going to talk about a, a, a court, a district, federal district court decision. It wasn't even a decision. I guess it was like an injunction that came out uh, overnight where they got a Trump judge down in Louisiana to basically do an injunction on the basis of like the Twitter files. Like not literally, but that thing, right? That the federal government has been colluding with the platforms to suppress free speech. And they got, you know, that kind of gaggle of, of, of Stanford doctors who are the big sort of like COVID freedom crew who, who were litigants in that. So we're going to talk about all of those things. But before we do, I want to remind you, you know, I've been saying our sponsor uh, for the last month is TPM, the website that produces and publishes this podcast. We are doing this TPM Journalism Fund fundraiser. This is the last uh, podcast episode. We're going to talk about it because the the fundraiser, uh, the drive comes to an end this Friday, and we are really close to hitting our goal. We are about 90% of the way to the goal right now. We've got three more days to get there. So we have a chance, but it's not a sure thing because we still have to raise like $50,000 more, which is an insane amount of money entirely on its own. Uh, but if you haven't contributed yet, if you're a if you're a member, if you've thought about it, if you're on the fence, if you have, uh, you know, if, you, if you're planning on doing it, but you're putting it off, we only got three more days. So when you hear this, if it's still uh, before Friday uh, of, of this week or on Friday, toss in a few bucks. You'll be glad you did. We do good work with it and all of that stuff. So uh, with that out of the way, um, uh, Kate, did you did you see the DeSantis web video? No, I only really saw your post about it and then I, I went back and watched it. Yeah. So what was your what was your thoughts? I mean, I guess it's a, we live in this world. So some of it almost doesn't seem that surprising to us in a way or to me. Yeah, I. It's almost, you know, it, it wasn't as extreme as like, do you remember that video that Paul Gosar put out the anime thing where he like <laughs> yeah. chopped off AOC's head? Yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. thing where it looks so like shitty and badly produced and like weird, you know, that you're almost like this looks like it should be the work of a, you know, a 13 year old who's really into like a franchise and made their own little video about it or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, obviously what's striking about it is the extreme backsliding in, in gay rights, right? Like, it's not like this video kind of is a, a novel revelation there, but we are in a time where, you know, five years ago, things that Republicans would say kind of like routinely about e equality kind of anodyne things are now absolutely disqualifying. Um, so the video is staked on a lot of that. And then as you kind of write about, it also has the weird, almost like homoerotic look at how buff and tough Ron DeSantis is, which is obviously a pretty prominent genre in the in right wing online stuff. I mean, there's all that that's a whole Trump thing unto itself, the putting his face on like bodybuilder type bodies or those paintings that one guy always does that has him, you know, be both like saint like and very muscular. And, right, and I think you right. pointed out that the um, you have now the RFK weird stuff where he's like doing push-ups in jeans and such. 
Yeah, it's well, you know, in in that thing too. They also so for if you haven't seen this this video, it's again the first half is the gay bashing stuff, and then the second half is Ron how he's gonna like you know drop the hammer on all these gay and trans people and stuff. And it has so it's it's interspersing all of these pictures of Ron DeSantis, pictures of Mr. Universe flexing. And then, you know, so so they're they're clipping in all of these different things that are supposed to symbolize DeSantis. And one of the things they clip in are these are these pictures from American Psycho, the Patrick Bateman character, who's a serial killer. Right. Which is that's kind of weird. Like, okay, DeSantis is like a serial killer. Like, I I mean, okay, that that's that's interesting. You know, where are you going with that? But actually, that is another thing in the online far right, because that character, um, you know, most of us would think those are not admirable traits. But the idea is he is a kind of an anti-hero because people didn't give him the respect that he deserved. And so he became a serial killer. And so you have this kind of, uh, you have these idioms that are part of far-right discourse. And and a lot of them is part of sort of like the incel world. There's this whole Giga mm-hmm. Chad character and stuff. Uh, and, and these things... It, it's not that they, you know, they make sense in that world. And if you, as an outsider, at least understand that language, you it, do, it doesn't seem normal, but it you understand what they're saying, right? You understand that what the symbols represent and everything, you know, doesn't mean it's not still still pretty sick and weird, but at least you kind of understand what they're saying. But to, to most people, you see that and you're like, dude, what is like, what, what, what is what is it? What is that about? It's just it's it's kind of even sort of normal Republicans see that and they're like, what? Like, well, you know, what? Yeah. And you kind of you mentioned this in your post, too, but it's also premised on the most just violent misogyny. I mean, it, it's all this very kind of stereotypical machismo, which is easy to make fun of because it's goofy. But like, you know, American Psycho is the only book I've ever had to stop reading because the hatred of women just like shimmered off the page and there was the descriptions of the violence done to them was so graphic that I found it like really, really upsetting. And that's all, you know, that's part of his like quote unquote appeal, right? Patrick Bateman's is like uh, misunderstood. And then he vents that rage on women by torturing and killing them. Um, And that undergirds so much of the right wing movement now that these politicians are trying to tap into, which as you say, is the incel community is this whole collective of men who, you know, it's not just obviously misogyny is not, not the only bigotry they typically espouse, but a lot of their, you know, wronged emotion comes from the fact that they feel that, you know, women haven't loved them or wanted to have sex with them or wanted to marry them the way that they deserve by their prominence in the social hierarchy. And, you know, that inversion is a huge part of the kind of, you know, burn it all down ethos because the patriarchy is not as strong as it once was. And that's something that's worth, you know, fighting back on both through kind of stupid right wing memes. But also, I mean, we're seeing that translated, obviously, into law all over the country, you know, whether that be trans bans or or abortion bans. Yeah, I mean, it's not Sweeney Todd or even like Dexter, 
right? There's ways that people mm-hmm. create dramas that are about really awful things, but but kind of make you root for the bad person in a way. Right. <laughs> this is really like a, a, a out of control rage, largely directed at women. Um, you know, we talk a lot about. I mean, there's 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 a lot of kinds of misogyny that may be based on anger towards women, um, hatred of women, but not always expressed in a way where it's that at the surface, right? It's, you know, wanting women to be, uh, play a subordinate role in the social hierarchy, wanting women to be, you know, because, you know, a lot of traditionalism is in its own way, very like protective of women, very mm-hmm. fawning over women, but in a certain role. But this isn't that. This is like cutting heads off and stuff. It's really, right. really. So it's, it's an, and you just see how, and, and with, that is the thing about DeSantis that he has, he has decided that that is his path. He's going to completely appeal to that kind of online world and you know and just 100% and and kind of like fill his campaign with with guys not always guys paradoxically enough but who are kind of from that you know from that uh from that world the other thing though about you know in in the the first half of that video the part again that was just pretty standard gay bashing you know there's a lot of things happening on the right now that are they're really just, uh, you know, kind of pissing matches or fights between Trump world and DeSantis world. Like one of the things you've seen over the last few weeks is they keep outing uh, or, you know, far right activists keep getting outed. So they're, they're as, as, you know, Nazis and racists and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's sort of a battle like, you know, who, who can, which side can out more of its operatives mm-hmm. as, as neo-Nazis and stuff like that. But I do, but with this ad, I, I saw some commentary that I think was not just part of that. Pretty hardcore conservatives sort of saying like, yeah, we're, I, I think it, I think it goes a little beyond um, where a lot of the right is on um, uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, inclusion of gays and lesbians, trans issues, and so forth, that that ad is kind of like, it's basically like, fuck you, gay people. It's just like, we hate gay people. And the way that the right has sort of rebooted homophobia in the last two or three years has been through this we're not we're not against gay people exactly. I've got gay friends, but it's it's the grooming stuff. It's the this. It's it's the trans stuff. And I think that that ad sort of shows that I think he kind of overdid it at least, even for where the right is on those issues right now. And and just if you didn't see the ad, um, it's most of it is basically attacking Trump for being too friendly to gays and lesbians and trans people and especially you know how he was in 2016 so you know there's a lot there's a lot going on it also does reveal the crux of desantis's flailing right now which is when we were talking about him you know when he kind of first was emerging as the potential trump spoiler 
part of what we thought could be his best route to the nomination is some way to package I'm everything you liked about Trump, but I'm less of like a constant embarrassment on the international stage. You know, it's like my administration is not going to leak every day. Like I'm going to know how to kind of comport myself with other world leaders, you know, just kind of a more genteel Trump. But then So he's pulled in that direction, right? And we saw that early on with the kind of like, here are my endorsements from normal Republican type things. But then it's all about, well, the people who like DeSantis like his like woke ban all the books in Florida stuff. So then it's like all of a sudden he's, okay, no, now I got to tack to the right. I got to be the woke culture war guy to beat Trump, which as you say, kind of concludes with him now saying, like, let's exterminate the gays, even if normal Republican people are like, whoa, you know, that's That's a little rich for my blood. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And so it's also just like in addition to, you know, all the horrible things, it's just kind of like, what are you like, what are you running as? Who are you trying to be? You know, he's trying to be the more respectable Trump sometimes. And then, you know, out of the other cheek, he's trying to be like, Trump is too nice to minorities for me. So I'm going to write that ship. You know, it's just completely incoherent. It's it's funny that there, there was, um, uh, to go back to your point about what his pitch was vis-a-vis Trump, he was combining two things. On the one hand, he's like, I'm not going to be like, you know, storing classified documents in the bathroom. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the craziness, but when it comes down to delivering on the culture war issues, I can actually get things passed. And that's, that's always been one of the obvious critiques of Trump. He's talking about building walls. He's talking about shutting down the deep state, all these kind of things. But like, where's the legislation? What did you actually do? Right. With Trump, a lot of it has ended up being his calling card is that he didn't accomplish anything. So he needs to come back and finally accomplish it. Or people betrayed him. The deep Mm -hmm. state stopped him and stuff. And DeSantis has this record of, again, legislative accomplishments, such as it is. Um, But if that's your if that's your thing, that's a big deal. And that he won reelection. Right. Which obviously Trump didn't. And, and I think most Trump people kind of have a have a guilty conscience about that. That Yes, the big lie. But, you know, deep down, you know, he lost. Right. And he couldn't get it done. And but he's had to. It's hard to say it's hard to say that someone lacks subtlety vis-a-vis Trump, but <laughs> it's not subtlety exactly. But he's just kind of a little too literal in a way. Um and uh, and we we see it here. And, and while all this stuff is happening, he just keeps collapsing in the polls. I mean, Trump is just stomping him right and left. And so the the the, the weaker he gets, the more he has to go in, go, go all in on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So quickly before we get to the glut of Supreme Court action that that we have to tackle. Um, speaking of kind of extremely online conservatives on. Tuesday, you know, famously 4th of July, all the federal stuff, including courts, are closed. We got an injunction from Terry Doty, this uh, Trump judge in the mold of a Matthew Kaczmarek, but less of a, you know, household name. And this guy, he's down in Louisiana. He produces an injunction that says all this this big ream of government officials, um, you know, from HHS to CDC to FBI, 
are no longer allowed to flag content to social media companies um, with the obvious, you know, it's not even subtext, it's just text in his opinion, that this is about you know, COVID misinformation, vaccine misinformation stuff. You know, he says that during the pandemic, it was Orwellian what the government was doing, even though by all accounts, it kind of seems like the biggest way that interplay works is that occasionally government agencies will flag people who've got enormous platforms who are kind of putting out dangerous misinformation. But this guy says, or this judge says, nope, that is a violation of the First Amendment. So the government is not allowed to even flag, quote, protected First Amendment speech for social media companies. And it's interesting because this was kind of immediately played in the write-ups as like Biden administration constrained from controlling misinformation, like huge blow to the Biden administration. When like I, if it stands, I guess, but it's absolutely insane. So I'm not sure why the default kind of framing when it comes from these people, like these specific judges who every single decision they do is nakedly kind of anti-Biden administration partisan, and they will kind of say whatever they need to say to arrive at that conclusion, no matter what the law is. Like, it just seems to me like our default at this point should be, you know, Trump judge outdoes the other Trump judges today with this absolutely batshit opinion that's based on no kind of legal theory and that just dribbles out of this right-wing conspiratorial vortex about conservatives being shadow banned and having their follower counts throttled and, you know, all the rest that Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of like shouts about every other day. What was striking to me that in, in this way, the, the Twitter files thing that Musk and Matt Taibbi and all these people did was sort of helpful in that, you know, they're going to show the worst stuff and everything. Well, two, two, two things. One thing is that most of the stuff they're talking about happened under the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 big, the big COVID stuff was under Trump not under, or at least most, most of it, not, not under Biden. Um, but most of the stuff that they are talking about is the, the social platforms have these terms of service. And it's basically some guy at, at, you know, some branch of government just flagging stuff that they, in the same way that if you can go on to Twitter or Facebook and whatever and say, and just, you know, click that button that says, you know, you have a, you're, you're not, not filing a complaint, but you say something violates the terms of service. And it's just some uh, government employee uh, doing that. So it's not the way that the, certainly the decision reads and even as you say a lot of the news reports read that this is what they appear to describe does sound kind of questionable but it's not actually what we saw in practice um and the other point is is that i think the decision basically said that criminal activity foreign election subversion and uh you know, terrorism, for, foreign policy national threats, threats are, are, yeah. national security are all allowed. And almost all of the things that we saw were in those categories. Right. The, the, and to be the, clear, con- the government contacting the social media companies about posts that fall under those categories is allowed. 
Right, exactly. Um, and, and and so, uh, you know, because most of the things we saw was like, you know, we think this is, this seems to be from a, you know, a troll farm in Russia right. or something like that. Um, so, like, in practice, I'm not even, I'm not even totally sure what this disallows. Because most of it, you know, most of that stuff is like child trafficking, uh, child pornography. Um, you know, different kinds of uh, criminal activity and so forth. So I'm not even sure in practice, even if it was upheld, what what it would actually get in the way of. You know, one other point is, again, this isn't even a decision. It's just a preliminary injunction. I mean, as you say at the beginning, it is a, it's an amazing thing. One federal trial court judge, without even having a case yet, just on the basis of the initial pleading from the plaintiffs, made national law that constrains mm-hmm. everybody until until it gets to um, some appellate court. Right. Or perhaps the Supreme Court, because Louisiana is governed by the Fifth Circuit, which we all know is a super right wing court. And the way that this has habitually kind of worked is you put your lawsuit in the hands of one of these reliably Trump judges, all of whom happen to be governed by the Fifth Circuit. It goes to the Fifth Circuit. More often than not, they let the injunction stand at least until they're done ruling and usually until it kind of gets to the end of the legal road, which means then you have this one guy dictating national policy until the Supreme Court decides the issue, which can be years since that initial ruling. So it's a huge amount of power in the hands of one like extremely right wing crank. (laughs) Yeah. And and just one kind of final point on this is, is how the government in any in any of its arms and capacities interacts with publishers platforms that's a real issue and you can you can imagine a court coming in and saying all right here's the ground rules here's how we're going to navigate this um this terrain but in a case like this you have it where you know the judge is saying greatest you know orwellian greatest attack on the first amendment in american history you're saying things like that you know this is not a let's set some ground rules kind of mm-hmm. kind of thing this is basically someone who you know uh, they're trying out for ha- for uh, carlson's position on fox news or something right, right. so yeah so Now let's get to the Supreme Court, which ended its term with a bang last week Um, on Thursday and Friday. They released the rest of the big decisions that we've been waiting for, which were student debt, uh, affirmative action, and this uh, wedding website designer case. And on the first two, which were very much kind of on our radar, and I listened to the oral arguments and everything, I was like pretty... 100% convinced that both were going down. I mean, during the affirmative action oral arguments, they spoke about it as if it was in the past, like they're a foregone conclusion. Um, And then student debt was just such a too easy to screw over the Biden administration. So I I kind of expected that one too. Um, I think affirmative action was interesting because it was uh, probably the angriest briefs I've ever read, um, which is, you know, saying something since we just had Dobbs, et cetera, et cetera. But especially the writings of, you know, not coincidentally, the people of color on the court, which were Clarence Thomas, Katanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor, were just 
unusually referential to the other uh, to the other writings, and they were very critical of each other. Um, and you know, at one point, kind of. Clarence Thomas is bemoaning Katanji Brown Jackson's view of a society, um, you know, irreparably riven by racism where black people are always the quote unquote victims. And that's, you know, and the kind of scars of uh, slavery are the only, you know, important things about black life and and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, she responded and it's like, uh, Thomas's prolonged attack on me, uh, you know, was taking issue with a dissent that I never wrote and that what this case is not about. You know, it was just like emotional. It was more emotional than most of these decisions we see um, usually are with the kind of the liberals writing a dissent to talk about, you know, the realities of systemic racism and um, the, you know, on the ground facts that if people of color their percentage that they're, you know, admitted to college drops, then that is a direct pipeline to all the leadership positions in society and, and, you know, kind of X, Y, and Z. And then you had Roberts writing for the majority saying, you know, well, we couldn't have this in perpetuity. It had to end sometime, you know, like kind of along the lines of his big voting rights decisions. You know, we're not in the 60s anymore. We don't need this stuff. Um, You know, isn't it so much better to kind of consider the the students you know holistic life rather than race blah 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 and he throws in this one little caveat that is so specifically to address something that Jackson brought up in oral arguments which was I thought was really striking that she said we're contemplating a future where certain people can talk about facets of their identity as kind of like big you know, shapers of their worldview and their experience. But then, you know, a a student who's black, like can't mention it, right? And like, that's bringing up its own kind of 14th Amendment problem. And then Roberts threw in this little caveat where he was like, you know, they can still write their essays about race. No one's, no one's worried about that, you know? Um, Interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize because that, 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 part of his decision has got quite a lot of attention because mm-hmm. it does seem at least potentially or certainly for um, the more prestigious universities that have big budgets and big admissions offices that can that can you know have people pour over individual essays which is really not the case at the big uh, state research universities which in prestige terms are you know can can get towards comparable with prestige with those kind of places, but they can't do admissions quite the same way that, um, that you almost open kind of a back door that you can, that you can have, uh, you know, take race into account as long as the individual, you know, 18 year old black kid, you know, writes, basically writes the argument of the dissents as their essay. Mm-hmm. And then it's and then it's like fair game. And it's 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 sort of a it's sort of this weird, ironic, perverse thing where, you know, in a sense, it's like the majority uh, assigning its homework to every 17 and 18 year old black kid that 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 they have to write their essay about about systemic racism. Right. And we'll it, believe a, it if you can prove it to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's almost like, you know, you get rid of. um society-wide arguments about racism Mm -hmm. in favor of uh, sort of, you know, artisanal how, you know, my own private theory in my own life, that's okay. And it does, but, you know, it it seems like more than an aside that 
this does create a a potential framework, at least for universities, again, that have the funding that they have admissions offices where they can have people give really close reads to essays that you can that you can uh, do something. I didn't realize that that was that that seemed to have been prompted by something mm-hmm. that Jackson said in oral in oral arguments. Yep. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was the big one. Uh, and then we had student debt, which was one of the most ludicrous decisions I've ever read from the Supreme Court, which is like really saying something. But the crux of the Biden administration argument is that a line of the law says that the Secretary of Education can waive or modify the, you know, the federal student loan structure, like waive or modify is kind of the key phrase. And the administration keeps being like, wave. It's right there. That's what it says. And it's in a lo- the text of a law designed to give the Secretary of Ex- Education flexibility with student loans during times of emergency. Like this is where the same authority to do all those pauses came from. And so this is one where it's just the court loves pretending statutory ambiguity and that that, you know, agencies are grabbing power that was not properly allotted to them and using it in in ridiculous ways. And much of this decision was premised on the major questions doctrine, which is one of these kind of like right wing fabricated things to to fit all their needs, which is that if an agency does something of of economic or political significance, their congressional authority in the statute had to be very, very explicit for them to take such large action. Wave or modify here was somehow not specific enough to meet that threshold because Robert says this would just be canceling so much freaking debt, man. Like that's a really big action. Uh, and so we've decided that's not specific enough. And it's just, it puts into such stark relief. If they don't like the agency action at hand, there's not going to be any kind of statute that it will ever be specific enough to meet that. Because this was a law that gives the secretary power to waive or modify student loans in times of national crisis. Somehow, you know, COVID doesn't qualify or canceling debt is somehow different than pausing debt for years. And, you know, tough beans, not good enough. That's where we are. And then it was interesting because Amy Coney Barrett wrote a concurrence where she basically tries to prove the thesis that the major questions doctrine is okay. If you're a textualist, it still still makes sense. Um, And it was like completely nonsensical because her famous kind of guidelines are the big hint for if an agency is running roughshod over its authority is if it tries to do things that are not, quote, in its wheelhouse. Pretty hard to make the argument that the Secretary of Education adjusting the federal student loan structure is not within his wheelhouse. But, you know, there there you have it. It's funny because this was a case that on the... Let me put it this way. This was a case that... I was inclined to think that is a pretty big thing for the president to be able to do on his own. You're talking about like half a trillion dollars, mm-hmm. um, which it amounts to spending since this is, you know, some people get confused about like, oh, what about the people who loan the money? What about, you know, they're not losing any money. The whole point of these loans is they're backstopped by the federal government. So this is mm-hmm. basically the federal government spending half a trillion dollars. And 
the ability for a president to do that, that does sound like a pretty big deal to me. And and so I go I went into it not knowing the particulars, thinking like, okay, that's that's a lot. That's a lot for the president to be able to do. But as you say, the empowering legislation is pretty clear. Uh, you know, it's it it kind of hard for it to be any clearer. And so you can certainly think that this is questionable on policy terms, but it's kind of just there as as just there. I mean, it says wave. You can wave. You can you can wave it. Waving means get rid of it. So so I, it's it's very hard to see what the contrary argument can be. But as you say, this court is very big into you know. It's almost like when someone says, "I can't hear you. I can't hear you," and you're screaming <laughs> in the ear like, "I can't hear you. I can't." You know, I can't hear you. They refuse to hear clear legislative language. Now, maybe it is bad policy for the Congress to to do that, but they did do it. And on what basis they shouldn't be able to do that is really not clear at all. And you have this, um, again, major questions doctrine, which is, I, I, I think I said somewhere that it's like, it's like, uh, it's not really the left exactly, but it was more like the post New Deal state used the Commerce Clause as kind of this very expansive uh, piece of text in the Constitution that kind of everything counted as commerce. So you could get down to the into the states and 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 make federal law. Now, obviously, that's been greatly pared back uh, by the conservative leaning courts over the last half century. Um, but the thing about the commerce clause is that there is a commerce clause. It actually is a commerce clause, and commerce actually is and always has been a fairly expansive term. So there's some similarity in that it's it's kind of a uh, it it's 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 kind of a a little um, a little tool that allows you to kind of just deal with a lot of things you want to deal with. But again, it's there. There is a commerce clause. And this major questions is not only is it a problem if you're a textualist, I think as 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 you've made clear in a number of things you've 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 written in in your coverage of of the court over last uh, last couple of years, this is just a way to make the court more powerful. Mm-hmm. To kind of just say like, no, we're, there's a lot of things that that uh, um, it's it's just up to us, and these things kind of seem like restrictions on uh, uh, democratic presidents, and to a great extent they are, but they're really erosions of congressional authority, because yeah. the Congress, again, if you look at this, the Congress did not have to say that. Um, I mean, technically, it's the it's Secretary of Education, but really, it's the President, right? Secretary of Education is going to do with the, not going to go rogue from the President. They didn't have to say the, that that person had the ability to waive these, you know, waive these loan obligations, but they did, and and it's very hard to to see how they don't have the ability to do that. It would be one thing if these were not federally guaranteed loans. I don't think Congress has the ability to say like, oh, you know. You, you know, uh, Josh loaned this money to Kate. Now Kate doesn't have to pay it back. Too bad for Josh, right? If it's if you're talking about private lenders, yeah, the Congress that that's that doesn't make sense. But but it's not. These this is all federal guaranteed. It's 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 sort of um this is this is another part with you know one of the issues with the whole um, federal education loan regime is that it's basically just free money for the lenders, right? It's it's backstopped. So. You know, there's uh, there's no risk. And I thought Kagan's dissent 
was really good for that reason that she you know, calls the use of major questions a threat to the democratic order, because that's what it is. It's the court appropriating power that Congress gave to agencies. And as she points out, you know, there is real, you know, good faith argument about that agencies are also somewhat, you know, insulated from democracy. They're you know, they, their power stems from the president, who's obviously like the most elected guy, but, you know, he staffs the agencies. But, you know, hard to make the case that the Supreme Court is somehow more of a democratic institution uh, than that. And it's just this huge power grab that has resulted in just kind of a forcible shrinking of the federal government, of making it weaker. And when it tries to do, you know, big, quote unquote, major things, whether that be environmental regulation or forgiving student debt, the court just says like, I don't like that. So we're just not going to let it stand. And it works out so well for them because they can pretend to have consistency on the issue because Republican presidents, at least in modern history, haven't been interested in regulating. So they don't generally use their agencies to pass kind of big sweeping rules because all they want to do is kind of deregulate everything, right? Roll stuff back. That's all the Trump administration did. And there you're not going to run into the, you know, a judge that gets or a court that gets jumpy about kind of a powerful executive branch. Um, And one thing that was so fascinating in the back and forth and the student debt stuff is at the very end of his opinion, Roberts slides in this little line that he he calls it a, quote, disturbing feature of recent dissents um, where liberals have kind of called out the court for appropriating this power. And he said, you know, it would be really, it'd be bad if such criticisms are taken as, you know, quote, disparagement rather than a heartfelt disagreement, because that would be harmful to the institution, which is, oh, I love so much that it's this little like, you know, my court we're going to win on all the big opinions because you libs, there's only three of you. There's nothing you can do. And by the way, I'm going to slap you on the wrist, in my opinion, for being too mean to me. And then Kagan responds, quote, justices throughout history have raised the alarm when the court has overreached, when it has exceeded its proper limited role in our nation's governance. It would have been, quote, disturbing and indeed damaging if they had not. The same is true in our own day. Just like, mic drop. Yeah, I mean, it. it's... This is a recurring feature of this court, and you see it from a number of the justices, though inflected in the tones of their own personality. You see Sam Alito out there giving speeches, you know, kind of trash talking individual journalists by name, saying, uh, you know, someone was someone leaked the Dobbs decision to the justices assassinated or all, all this kind of totally wild stuff. And uh, Roberts doesn't, he, he's not that kind of pugilistic thing, but he's saying something pretty similar. Don't, it is not okay to question us. You know, that heartfelt like, oh, we love you so much. We're just trying to make sure you do the right thing. It is, as you say, they they do want uh, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, who is just one of the, you know, always been one of the greatest commentators for a very long time now about the Supreme Court, called it a smash and grab majority. And that really does kind of capture it. They want to, I think I said somewhere a few weeks ago, that their jurisprudence is basically at this point like sucks to be you. 
mm-hmm. that that is what it comes down to. We have the six people. We can do anything we want. There's nothing you can do. So sucks to be you. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, don't you dare criticize us well, because and, we're and, just calling balls and strikes, baby. And that is the, they are, that is really the essence of it because they want their cake needed too. They want mm-hmm. to have not only all the power, but all the power without even restraining it to give it some appearance of a disinterested effort to apply the law. They're not, they're not, they're not trying. They're just kind of saying like, why should we try? We don't have to try. We have six votes and we can do everything we want. And you still have to treat us like these, you know, kind of disinterested figures who are totally indifferent to politics, just following a set of rules and stuff. And, and as those assertions become more voluble, as, as the volume gets turned up, that's really a measure of how they realize in spite of themselves, that you can't have it both. And so they're demanding both louder and louder. Um, but I think as, as, we, as we see, you can't have both. And I think everybody realizes that you can't have both. And for the moment, it still sucks to be us because they do have six votes, right? And so even if they can't, uh, they still eat the cake, even if they can't also have the cake after they ate it. But, but that is where you... That is where you see that, that's where you see that, that tension. And it's, it's funny, one thing, and I, I wasn't, I certainly knew this about abortion. I wasn't quite as clear on it about affirmative action, but there were a few polls out recently and it's not as stark as it is with abortion, but affirmative action is more popular than it was 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, I think it, you know, the polls I saw were like, you know, 55, 45, in favor, something like that. So not overwhelming, but clear, but clear. And the reality was, and I, I'm, I don't have the polling data in front of me right now, but you go back 20 years, it wasn't popular. It probably would have been at least those numbers flipped, if, 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 not, uh, if not worse. In the same way that like, you know, uh, when the old version of welfare was uh, abolished and replaced by the sort of smaller, tighter programs that exist now, it wasn't popular. That's one of the reasons it was, you know, it was uh, killed. Um, But you see a similar pattern in which one of the reasons that seemed very hard to imagine that this decision would not come down as it did with affirmative action is that affirmative action, along with abortion, in some ways, almost uniquely, those two issues, although the sort of the, the regulatory stuff has always been the sort of the underlying issue with uh, the conservative judicial movement, federal society, et cetera, those have always been the big issues. Like that is why you are becoming a judicial conservative because you want to get rid of affirmative action the same way you want to get rid of Roe. So again, that's, that's like the prize. Of course, they're going to get rid of it when um, they have the opportunity. But these are both issues that were a lot less popular 20, 30 years ago. So these, these kind of cardinal issues have been growing more popular while the judicial right on the federal bench has becoming more powerful. So there's this weird, um, there's this weird uh, uh, co- collision 
that we're seeing playing out. If they would have done it 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been this thing where kind of like, how can you do this when like the population is the other side of the question? It wouldn't have been as clear. But now it's pretty clear. More with abortion, but also with affirmative action. That honestly came as a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah. And to put a bow on the student debt case, um, I thought the Biden administration reaction to it was great. On the same day the decision came down a few hours later, Biden had an Oval Office address where he said, we're going to go a different route. You know, we're going to try to do loan forgiveness premised on this other law. It's going to go through agency rulemaking. It's going to take longer. But, you know, this is we it's legally sound and this is the route we're taking. And it's like, on the one hand, kind of impossible to see how this will survive, you know, if this first attempt didn't. As we said, it's statutorily so clear. Um, it's just clear that this court, like, doesn't want student debt to be forgiven and probably won't let it. But I thought it was just... It's interesting because on both abortion and student debt, Biden is such an odd president to be in the position to fight those things because abortion has like, you know, always made him pretty uncomfortable. He's only really even started saying the words somewhat recently. And then with student debt, it was pretty clear when this was a big issue in the Democratic campaign that he was also kind of uncomfortable with it. And he didn't like the idea that inevitably some kind of rich kids would get involved in this net and would get relief. And he kind of floated. He didn't like this applying to the big elite institutions. You know, he's very much more comfortable with this being kind of narrowly directed. Like he never liked universal relief. He is definitely more of a fan of like, well, you know, if it's for community colleges, that's good and and, and everything like that. So it's funny that he's the president who's now, by virtue of the situation, kind of on the front lines of this issue. But I honestly found it, you know, and I obviously have student loans. I'm not a, a totally neutral observer here, but I thought it was pretty powerful where he kind of immediately got up there. He blamed it on Republicans and he said, but I'm not going to stop trying. Uh, I know that this debt is crushing you. And here's what I'm going to try next. We already initiated the rulemaking process immediately. Um, and again, like, I don't think it'll work, but I think it's a pretty good, at the very least, I think it's pretty good PR to have the court do this and be like, it's Republicans and the courts fall. I'm sorry. You know, that sucks. But here's what we're trying next. We're going to work tirelessly to get this to you. Um, and I think it's a good strategy, especially because, you know, I... I specific to the circles in which I run, but the student debt stuff broke through in a way that I didn't expect at all. Even the kind of young people I know who are not political were pretty or not, you know, not politically invested. We're like pretty excited about it. Well, I mean, it, it, it directly affects a lot of people. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's it, in an obvious, in an obvious way. And I think, you know, your point about how the Biden administration reacted to it, it's very on brand for how the, as you say, how the Biden administration, as opposed to necessarily the, the campaign functions, which is basically to say like, okay, you know, they've got the power. Doesn't mean we're, I mean, we're going to follow it. Doesn't mean we're going to like respect it. Or kind of, you know, it depends what verb you want to use there exactly. We're not going to pretend that kind of like, oh, I guess it wasn't constitutional. Right. Like, like, okay, you know, they get to decide, but this is bogus. So we're going to just try, we're going to try to do the same thing another way. And it's good to kind of put the, even if it, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, uh, we don't know what the lay of land is going to be when, when uh, another version of this comes before the court. I mean possible that might not even be the same court exactly. I mean, who knows? Um, 
But I think there's a point to say, we if you want to play it that way, we're going to at least put you through your paces. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to make you decide that paradoxically, the nine different ways you can do this all happen to be unconstitutional. You know, bad exactly. luck for the, yeah, bad luck for the student loan people. But, you know, put them through their paces to kind of like, you know, we're just going to make you do this over and over again to kind of at least make sure everybody understands where the problem is, that right. you and just don't want this to happen. And you're just going to exactly. come up with a rule for whatever we were, you know, whatever new angle we come up with, you're going to come up with a way that, oh, James Madison said no. Right. And it's the inverse of what you and I talk about that's so frustrating that the Democratic Party does sometimes, which is like, well, we're not going to win. So why would we kind of like get caught losing in public? You know, why would we bother if if it's not going to work? Um, and it's such more of a leaning into like, okay, yeah, we'll probably lose, but we're also going to get to define who the villains are here, right? And posit ourselves as the force for, in this case, you know, if you want debt relief, you can't vote for Republicans. That's not going to work. So you might as well vote for the guy who keeps trying to get it done. Yeah. And it, it, it operates in that way at a few levels of sort of like, we're right. So why would we stop? Yeah. Right. Because stopping kind of like, People get too smart for their own good. Or like, why are we going to do it? It's not going to work. Well, people start thinking like, okay, well, I guess you must have been wrong because you stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but to say kind of like, well, we, we were, A, it's the right thing to do. And actually, there's no constitutional problem. So why would we stop just because you said it? And again, that, that difference between, you know, we're not going to not, we're not going to defy the Supreme Court's narrow ability to, in this case, constrain us. But we're not going to we're not going to pretend that this is any more than an assertion of power that you have. Yeah. And like, whatever, you have the six seats. So it sucks to be us. But we're not going to we're not going to stop doing the right thing. Right. OK, so the last case we wanted to talk about was this absolutely bizarre wedding website case that is all premised on a complete hypothetical, which is about this woman who's never direct, who's never created wedding websites before deciding that hmm, maybe she will want to in the future. And what if a hypothetical gay couple wants her to design one? Well, she doesn't want to have to do that. And that's literally not even hyperbolic. That is just the plain statement of the case with the added kind of sprinkle atop of the story from the New Republic that in later filings, you can tell that the people, you know, on this woman's team are starting to feel a little bit weird about the fact that they're making up every single fact of this case. So it's almost as if they go like diving for a gay couple who has reached out for her services. And turns out the guy they cite is married to a woman and has no idea what they're even talking about here. So is there a theory of what is okay, so he fills out a form just asking a couple quite is there any I mean, I guess that um, the people that I've, I mean, the 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 lawsuit. What is it? Declaratory judgment. What's the what's the term? Is it declaratory judgment? When you basically say, kind of, I, I want a ruling from you in advance of any facts, just to kind of protect oh, me in advance. I yeah, I mean, I can't emergency filings of yeah, whatever. Um, so the the suit predated this phony request for information, or you know, mm-hmm. effort to get a gay marriage website or something like that. And the the people who understand these technicalities, as least as I understand it, basically say like, it's embarrassing, but it doesn't really 
matter. This was just kind of a supplementary thing that was mm-hmm. brought up, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it it wasn't the basis of any decision. And uh, even if you could argue that it was, it would still be up to the supreme, same Supreme Court to decide whether it matters. So it's not going to get redone or anything. But there's this factual question of like, okay, where did this thing come from? Because clearly, it did not come from this married straight man, um, or straight, you know, not straight Mm -hmm. man, but you get it, what I mean, Uh, heterosexual married man. Um, But it had his what phone number and address, but not his name, or it has his first name or something like that. So somehow this happened. And I'm just if for nothing else, just for entertainment value, I would like to know how did this happen? Because he says he didn't do it. And how possibly could that have, ha- you know, happened? So is I, I would like to see some kind of investigation um, or someone, I wonder if someone could get into some court basically just saying that this was like a fraud on the court or so, or something like that. And like there's discovery or something. I don't know. Cause it's just, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And you know, the opinions don't really, they don't deal with it at all, but I have to say, I kind of, I ended the day by um, going through all the filings in this case. And it was just, this one was so, so depressing because it's just so, I mean, they're all depressing, but this one is so obviously kind of rooted in, you know, we opened with the show, the the right wing backlash that is kind of now in 2023 making gay rights like less acceptable than they were five years ago. Um, and Sotomayor did the dissent for this one and kind of just places it in the context of businesses from the beginning of American history trying to find kind of legal ways to let them discriminate against various groups, you know, that's happened with women and black people and like every conceivable wave of immigrant, basically. Um, And it's just she kind of opens with this. Today, the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. I mean, that's huge. That's enormous. You know, this kind of enshrining in legal authority just on its face bigotry, right? And I mean, Gorsuch does what they always do, which is like pull from the uh, genuine conviction well to like give bigotry some kind of acceptability because they really believe it. I've always thought that's like our the weirdest knee jerk that, that the right wing does. Like, who cares how deeply you believe it. Like, what does that have to do with anything, you know? Well, one of the things I didn't understand here, because I, I, I saw a number of people arguing, and not necessarily people who agree with the case, that the decision is narrower, that it is basically um, saying that, like, if they, if, you know, if a gay person came in and said, okay, I want you to, uh, you know, I, I, I want you to create a website for my uh, general litigation law practice, that it would be, it would be it wouldn't be allowed to say, mm-hmm. hey, you're gay. I don't want to I don't want to work with you because I don't like gay people. So that point being, this is a it is not about it does not protect bigotry or whatever you want to call it prejudice against the group. It has to do with a certain, uh, you know, expressive advocacy that you don't agree with and violates your First Amendment, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I certainly recognize that concept. I recognize that distinction. The problem is, though, is that 
the ability for gays and lesbians to marry is now enshrined in American law. And getting married is, is an intrinsic feature of being gay or being a lesbian in the sense that, that marriage is just a, a, you know, birth, marriage, death. It's, 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 a, it's a life function, right? So it's not, I, I was, I was um, kind of posing this to one of my uh, conservative friends online, kind of like, I understand the distinction, but doesn't this distinction kind of break down? Because if, if uh, it, it is, again, it is inherent, it's intrinsic to the class of gay and lesbian people that their marriages will be to people of the same gender. So how is that actually a distinction? And I still haven't gotten a good answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, so I don't, I, and I don't think there is a good answer. You know, it, it is inherent to who that person is. I mean, I guess you could, you know, you, maybe you could say like, okay, I, I don't want to do your pride, you know, your, your pride march website. Not against you being gay, but that that is a whole political advocacy that's not my political advocacy. So I'm happy to to work with you, but but don't make me do that. Um, not sure that not sure that quite adds up, but that seems to be a meaning at least a meaningful distinction, sort of, or one that one that you can say a um, a theoretical distinction might actually make sense. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in real life circumstances. But again, as long as, as long as, um, uh, the, the same sex marriage is a constitutionally protected right. Again, it just seems intrinsic to being gay. Yeah. The other kind of like loophole that's written in Sotomayor just kind of destroys in a line that kind of made me laugh, but she says, The majority protests that Smith will gladly sell her goods and services to anyone, including same-sex couples. She will just not sell websites for same-sex weddings. Apparently, a gay or lesbian couple might buy a wedding website for their straight friends. This logic would be amusing if it were not so embarrassing. And it's just, yeah. I mean, it's, put that logic in any other context and it's absurd, right? It's like Black people can book this hotel room for their white friends, but not for themselves, right? It's right, like, right, what? right. Well, the the you know the um, one of the we talk a lot. We we've talked through this episode about that you pull away the individual cases, the individual facts, the individual even big questions, and what you really have here is the court continually making itself more and more powerful. Mm-hmm. And one of the great constraints. Uh, to judicial power is always that you've got to you've got to have someone who is harmed. You can't it the court can't just say, "Hey, this year we're going to make this illegal." You have to have someone with some real standing come up and say, "I've been harmed. I'm going to sue in the courts to to um, make myself whole from my harm." And when that case comes up, then the court has some ability to basically make law and change what is allowed and not allowed. Now, with public interest law firms on both sides, generally you're going to come up, you know, you're going to be able to come up with someone who's got who's claiming some harm for something and obviously that happens on both sides of the of the ideological spectrum. 
Um, but it's still some constraint, right? That things can't be totally fictive and, and totally imagined. But you also have the question of standing. And that was a question that came up with the with the uh, student loan case. Mm -hmm. Because again, sure, maybe they think it's not allowed, but you still have to have someone who comes forward and say, hey, I've been harmed here. And one of the big questions there is you're going to say, who's been harmed? Are, are, are you know, are, have individual taxpayers been harmed in some in some fractional way? And you have a, 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 a that was actually a pretty big issue in that case was deciding that someone who really didn't have any harm had standing to challenge it. And they kind of came up with a workaround there. Um, but in but what we see in the, uh, you know, same sex marriage website case is that, you know, there had been no harm. It was pre-harm, you know, like pre-cog or something like that. And there are avenues in the law. Again, again, I can't remember if it's declaratory judgment or whatever, but where you can kind of like get an adv advanced ruling if something is um, expected. But what you really see here is the, you know, a huge, huge thing for the federal society uh, has been, you know, what they call religious liberty and carving out a, a kind of a backdoor to various kinds of discrimination through um, through religious liberty, and this is a big thing for um, a Leonard Leo, the big Federal Society guy. And what you see here is the way that they have created, you know, they, they have floated these cases that, in many cases, is so theoretical they can't even really come up with a litigant. Mm -hmm. for it. But you've just got this kind of conveyor belt with two or three activist groups finding people who will make, you know, kind of pretended claims. And then it just gets, you know, fast tracked to the Supreme Court. And you have a case like this. On the standing and jurisdictional side, things have been degrading at the court, maybe even faster than on the merits side, the stuff that kind of gets more coverage. Um, the student loan one is such a good example because they ultimately had to reject one of the student loan lawsuits because the standing was so silly. Like the the people clearly were not at all harmed from the loan forgiveness. And they actually wanted the Biden administration to pursue loan forgiveness via a different law. Like the whole thing was stupid. And they they rejected that one. But the one they upheld is premised on the harm to this organization called Mohila, which is the Missouri's kind of like student loan debt servicer, which is an, an entity that is completely independent from the state. And yet it was the state that brought the lawsuit. Mohila was not involved in any capacity, even as like an amicus brief. It just wasn't at all part of the case. But the state is claiming that its injury comes from the injury to this entity. I mean, it's ridiculous. And the theory I mean, there is that because they're loan servicing and it's kind of reduced their, their, their cash flow, basically, as yeah, a loan servicer. Right. Yeah. And then you know, separately, we had the Moore v. Harper decision, the independent state legislature one that we were very pleased about, but it's jurisdictionally insane. Like it hurts me to ever have to agree with Sam Alito on anything, but his whole thing there is like this case is moot. There's no case to decide. And, you know, the legal experts I kind of talked to were like, yeah, there's not really a live case here anymore, but it might be better for them to decide on this now than in 2024. And ultimately the decision was a good one, but like, 
they were just kind of making stuff up. Like there was clearly no underlying case. And this, and like you say, the standing stuff, it's just coming up again and again and again, where these very kind of basic tenets of the law, where you have to have a demonstrable, redressable injury for the court to address, that's just like really going out the window. Now it's kind of like whoever can kind of like gesture in the direction of a potential injury is good enough to usher the case in before the court. Well, it's sort of an it, it's you know you you allude to this point that that the the pro voting rights kind of pro democracy people were happy to say like okay there's the case is the case is moot it's done but like okay let's let's look the other way because we're going to get it you know we got a good decision here so like whatever like we got to get our good decisions when we can but it it does I mean because the the, the mootness, I'm trying to, I'm not sure if that's the form of the word correctly, issue used to be a, have a great deal of finality to it. The case doesn't exist. There's nothing you can do. Um, But that changes when you have a Supreme Court just saying like, you know what? How about we do do it? Because whatever. (laughs) And that used to be premised on the Supreme Court's overriding goal, which was to find reasons not to take cases up. Like that's what the court was always doing, whether they be standing or jurisdictional or no controversy in the lower courts. Like the Supreme Court was always kind of angling. And this has gotten dramatically more true in recent history, but to find reasons to limit the pool that they take up because, you know, they're supposed to spend a ton of time on it. These are, you know, binding decisions. So you want them to have a lot of kind of work put in. But this court does that some of the time. And then with kind of, you know, right wing pet issues is like, it's fine. It's fine. We'll take it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, sucks to be you is the is the is the real jurisprudence of this court um yeah at so, least now a short relief right yes it's always the weirdest time of the kind of political calendar it's like now you you have to wait with bated breath to see like which civil rights are going to be rolled back and then you have a few months before the new term starts right. so. <laughs> exactly exactly okay well uh that is i think all we have for this week let me remind you uh this is we're in the third to last day of our uh fun drive for the tpm journalism fund if you haven't had a chance to check it out to toss in a few bucks if you've been thinking about it if you've been putting it off. Today is the day to do it uh, or tomorrow or the day after that, the last day. Uh, But it's really key for uh, what we do. And um, as I've said a few times, if you are a reader of the website, you've probably been hearing more than you want to about this. But if you're just a listener to the podcast, maybe you don't uh, go to the website, maybe just a a fan of our podcast. So if you are, uh, check out, go to our website. It's, It's the organization that publishes this podcast. Podcast. It's where the resources come from. You can go to talkingpointsmemo.com. Just go to that site, uh, kind of flip around. You'll see promo for it uh, and toss in a few bucks. And that is, I guess that's all we have for this week, right? Yep. All right. All right. See you next week. Later. See you next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 